Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Think Orange Podcast. A podcast with ideas and conversations to help you influence the next generation. Here are your hosts, Dave Adamson and Ashley Bohens. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Think Orange Podcast. My name is Dave. I am your host. And today I am sitting across the table in the Think Orange bunker from... Nobody. Ash is still not here. Uh, She's got some very important stuff that she's taking care of at the moment for Orange, but she will be back for episode 65, so you can all look out for that. It's going to be amazing to have her back in the bunker. Hey, before we get started today, please allow me the opportunity just to read something to you, okay? Now, here it is. Most of the women on the streets and in the brothels of Western cities haven't come from far away impoverished villages on the other side of the globe like we so often hear or imagine. They started in foster care. The stats are alarming. 70 to 80% of street and indoor prostituted people trafficked in America come from the system. When foster kids age out of care, there is no one there to help navigate the perplexing and challenging realities of real life. Well, actually, there is someone there. He's called a pimp or a trafficker. Like lambs to a slaughter, we let our foster girls walk out of care and into the hands of exploiters. Now, that is heartbreaking, right? So what do we do? What do we do as a community? What do we do as the church? Well, today, we're going to find out some of the things that we can do about this. And to help us, we've got some amazing special guests. First up, we're going to be hearing from Noemi Chavez. Now, Noemi is co-lead pastor at 7th Street Church in Long Beach, California with her husband, Joshua. She is a national conference speaker and serves on various boards. Noemi is also the co-founder of Brave, a movement which focuses on reaching out to girls that are on probation and in the foster care system. Now, Noemi was in the Think Orange bunker a few weeks ago where she was interviewed by a great friend of the pod, Sarah Bragg. Now, we're also going to hear a clip from Danielle Strickland. Anyone who has listened to this pod for any length of time has probably heard about Danielle Strickland, but if you haven't, she is the author of five books with her most recent one being The Ultimate Expert. Exodus, finding freedom from what enslaves you. She also wrote a great book called The Zombie Gospel, The Walking Dead and What It Means to Be Human. Now, Danielle is the host of the DJ Strickland podcast. She's an ambassador for Compassion International and Stop the Traffic. She is also the co-founder of the Brave Campaign. And this trafficking and prostitution issue is something that absolutely breaks Danielle's heart. You only need to sit across the table from her, have a quick conversation with her, and you can can see the compassion she has for these often forgotten women. You are absolutely going to love what she has to say today. And you know what? We're just going to go straight into the content from today's thing without any further ado from me. Luke 17, verse 11, it starts like this. As Jesus continued on toward Jerusalem, he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. We'll just stop there for a second. Because it's a tricky, this is tricky business. Um, as Jesus continued on, so some translations will say this, on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus stopped by the border place. And it kind of gives you this idea, the way that it's written, that the border place is actually on the way to Jerusalem, right? Because that's what it says, on the way to Jerusalem. Now, the problem is, is geographically, if you were to look on a map, the border place, literally border places are designed by social design to be out of the way. 
The reason why is because border places are places in our cities still today, but definitely back then, where all the undesirable people are kept. <laughs> all of the people with infectious diseases, they're kept in the border places. All of the people with mental illness, kept in the border places. All of the criminals that you don't want in your like local shops, you know, they're all sent out to another place called a border place. So those are border places. They're designed not to be accessible. They're designed to be inaccessible. So when it says that on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus stopped by the border place, it's a bit confusing because it makes you think like it's just something Jesus does on the way. But it actually is out of the way, <laughs> which is really point number one if you want to try to reach marginalized and vulnerable people is if you're going to be like Jesus, moving into the deep end, leaving the shallow end and the splash parks, you're going to have to go out of your way to get in the way every single time. This is how society is still designed, by the way. Now, there were a few theories I went through on this. It could be that Jesus just got lost because he was a man. <laughs> right? He probably couldn't ask for directions, so there he is, found himself in the border place. Or, you know, why does Jesus go out of his way to get in the way? Because this isn't the first time Jesus gets in boats and crosses over lakes. I mean, he's constantly going out of his way to get in the way, and why would somebody do that? Designed, I mean, border places are designed to be out of the way on purpose. Because there's nothing worse than being like on your way to church and running past a homeless person. And then you're like, I feel so guilty. Should I give him money? He might drink it. You know, like it would go into these like epic, you know, ah, so, you know, it's just terrible. And then to even have them outside your doors of the tribe, I mean, it's just, ah, it's epically embarrassing. So, you know, we create these border places where we don't have to do that. We don't have to see. Now, we talked a little bit about the Brave campaign this morning. This is the foster care girls, you know, the invisible. I mean, one of the, the great travesties of human trafficking is it's an invisible crime. It's hard to see. It's out of the way. And if you want to get involved in things like that, you want to get involved with the marginalized or the vulnerable, you want to get involved even with the people who are in other places, you've got to get out of your way. They're not going to, like, just wander into your church. It's very rare. <laughs> They're not just gonna like show up. Like racial reconciliation is not gonna happen if people don't go out of their way to get in the way. Do you understand? As a matter of fact, the way our whole society is designed, suburbs are designed with like-mindedness in mind. So even if you're being a good neighbor in your suburb, you're not being a great neighbor because no one, everyone's gonna look like you for the most part, unless you're living like in an urban setting where there's like a lot of diversity. But for the most part, all your neighbors are gonna be just like you. So for you to actually be like Jesus in terms of entering into the deep end of caring for people who are not like you or who are low, like social, economic, lower, marginalized, invisible, you know, you're going to have to get out of your way. And I wish it was like different. I wish it was easier. But it's not. That's actually how. And it, it wasn't even easier for Jesus. I mean, Jesus did it on purpose. So you got to go out of your way to get in the way. That's step number one. And that's the Jesus does this all the time. Now, what, now that you've seen this once, you'll see it all through when you read the Gospels. Number one, you'll see that you're a Pharisee. Number two, you'll see there's a recovery program. Uh, number three, you'll see the invitation of Jesus rather than the condemnation of Jesus. He's for you, not against you, and actually wants you to come with him into this beautiful kingdom and into the deep end of that and bringing that to the earth. You'll see all these things. It's actually so beautiful. To, it's refreshing to confront your own fear about being a religious person. So refreshing. And then to actually allow Jesus to speak and then to follow Jesus' example, living out Micah 6, 8 in real life, you know, to get out of your way, to get in the way. That's step number one. The reason Jesus does it, the motive behind it is because Jesus is in love with mercy. He loves mercy. Now, I want to be really clear about this because um, we know how to act merciful, but that's different than loving mercy. Just for the record, I, I've got this down. I grew up in the Salvation Army, so like mercy is like my middle name. 
And uh, it's just the expectation to act merciful, but to love mercy is different than acting merciful. And what Jesus is asking, what he's requiring is for us to love mercy. And then the question becomes like, like when you actually start reading Jesus, Jesus literally sees needy people coming and he moves in. (laughs) Now, you know this, when you see needy people coming, you usually divert your eyes. Right? Like you make small talk in a quick hurry because you know this is going to take too long and this is going to be too hard. And this is because you're out of mercy. Now, I'm the mother of three boys, so I'm out of mercy by about 8 15 a.m. <laughs> I'm literally all out. You know what I mean? So I'm just like, how do I, what, how does Jesus do this? Even the disciples, you know, when all these people are there, they're, they're like, people are starting to get hungry. We should send them home. Right? That's what they said. I mean, I think it's a brilliant idea. Like, I'm just like, genius disciples, send them home. Like, this is looking too hard already. They can see it coming, right? They can see too hard coming. So they're like, send them home. And Jesus looks at them with a big smile on his face going, nah, you feed them. Like, literally, like, speaking to their fear, right? They're like, I can't feed them. You know, just like, it's too hard. Ah, why do I follow Jesus, you know? I'm constantly saying, you know, I said I would do anything for Jesus, but I didn't mean this, you know, I just, who could have seen this coming? But to love mercy, so Jesus is trying to invite the disciples into the deep end of the mercy pool, and how do you do that? Uh, one, of the, one of the things that has revolutionized my life in this way is um, this little story happened to me. I was speaking in America at something, and you, when you speak in America, you start feeling really good about yourself. You guys are great at this, you know, just like, I go back to Canada, and I'm just like, I'm amazing, you know, Canadians are like, ah, shut up, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I, I had to go to this Salvation Army, like, officers meeting, and when I say I had to go, I had to go, like, I was ordered to go, and I had taken my holidays and done this speaking thing, and then I, like, flew back, like, jet, you know, red-eye to get to this conference that I had to be in the middle of nowhere, northern Canada, I mean, it was just such a chore for me, and I'm also, like, amazing, because I'm a Pharisee, and so I'm like dragging my you know, suitcase through some gravel in nowhere land and I've flown all the place over and I'm hungry and I'm tired and I drag it in there and I get to the registration and they're like, oh, we didn't know you were coming. You know, we forgot to keep, keep a room for you. you know? And I was just like, Pharisees. <laughs> but on the outside, of course, because I'm a good Pharisee, I was like, oh, that's no problem. You know, but inside I was like, do you even know who I am? Yeah. <laughs> And uh, so then they're like, but you know what? We, we have this like room, but there's no door, but that's like, that'll work, right? And I'm like, yeah, totally. That's awesome. Pharisees. So then I'm dragging my suitcase to this room and this, uh, all the officers are already there and they're eating dinner in this kind of like glass enclave thing. And I'm like hungry already, right? And so I decide, you know what? I, before I saw them, I thought, I'm just gonna shake off this like feeling I've got, you know, this sort of American celebrity thing. I'm gonna like just go for a run and I'm gonna come back all new. I'm gonna work out all my angst and a run. So I go for a run and I come back. Now I'm like super hungry. Like I've been traveling and like I'm hungry. All these officers are eating dinner. And then one of them comes running out. Danielle, Danielle, thank God you're here. I'm like, finally, somebody recognizes my power, you know? And I don't say any of this out loud. I'm a Pharisee, hello. So I, I said, oh, hi, you know? And so they said, oh, you know, there's this homeless couple stranded in the next town. And they called and said, I wonder if the Salvation Army could do something. And we were all eating and we just thought, oh, look, there's Danielle. She could do that, you know? And so I, you know, they passed me the credit card. I take the credit card and I'm like, yeah. Like, so on the inside, I'm like, am I the last Salvation Army officer on earth that cares for the poor? Like, you know, maybe one of you commoners could do it. Like, I've been busy, you know, like I just flew in and I'm like tired. You know, I went through my whole thing. And on the outside, of course, I said it would, it would be such an honor, you know? <laughs> 
And so then I'm like, you know, and I get in my car and I'm just like, the Salvation Army, you know, whatever it is. And I'm driving to this next town and I like, in the gracious spirit of Mother Teresa, pull over, get in, you know, get homeless people in the back of my car. And I'm like, what do you need? You know, and they're like, we need groceries. You know, we need some food and we need a train ticket. So I said, all right, okay. So we go to this grocery store in the middle of nowhere, Northern Canada. I mean, it's like literally like everything's a hundred dollars, you know, like they flew it all in, you know? And I get into the store. You know what they say, you never shop when you're hungry, right? Just don't do it. (laughs) It's bad for your wallet, you know? So I get into this store and I can smell, the first thing I smell are the strawberries. They hit me the first, you know, just strawberries, like $10 each, you know, like. (laughs) And I just like instantly, I smell these strawberries. It's like, those are the best smelling strawberries. Do you guys, and I said to these guys, I'm like, guys, do you smell those strawberries? (laughs) And these guys are like, yeah. You know, if only we could get the strawberries. And I'm like, yeah, if only we could afford the strawberries. And then it dawned on me. I had the credit card for the Salvation Army, like region, you know what I'm saying? Like I had the credit card, like I just instantly, it hit me and I was like, we're having strawberries today. You know, like I was just like, how's this? And they're just like, really? And I was like, yeah, take a gallon. Like we'll have all your strawberries, you know? And then I was like, you guys want some bread? And then I was like, forget the white bread. Like, you know, that olive encrusted bread with like almonds on top. Like, let's get that bread. They're like, yeah, I always wanted to try that bread. And so that's how our shopping trip went. Just like we're eating things in the aisle. We're just like piling food. I mean, we, me and these homeless guys are just like having a party. And we get to the, we, we get to the checkout, you know, and I can see they're nervous because they've like thought I've lost my mind, right? Like, I mean, they're used to like one, pe- you know, one peanut butter and jelly sandwich each, you know, like in a soup line, you know, and I'm just like, strawberries. And uh, we get to this checkout and we're checking it out and they're just like nervous, nervous. Like we're probably gonna get arrested because this lady's crazy. And I'm just like, ching And they give them the credit card, you know, swing. And I'm just like, isn't this awesome? And they're like, this is awesome. And I'm like, let's get you first class tickets. And we go to the bus stop and we get them first class tickets. I'm not even kidding. And I'm like, okay, guys, it was great to meet you. You know, have a great time. And they're just like, well, like, couldn't you pray for us? And I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot. I should know that. You know, I've been in ministry a long time. I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot. What do you want prayer for? You know, I totally can pray for you. I totally do that. I was like, what can I pray for you about? And this is what they said to me. They said, we want whatever it is you have. Now, that trip, that little tiny window transitioned my experience. I flipped, right? I went from grumpy, duty-bound, begrudged, like have to, to like fun, exciting, experiential, like party. What happened? Yeah, what happened was I tapped into a resource beyond my own. I tapped into a resource beyond my own. As soon as it wasn't me, as soon as I was out of my own resources, as soon as I got to the end of my own resources, I tapped into a resource beyond my own. And as soon as I tapped into the resource that was beyond my own resource, it just got fun. Now there is an inexhaustible resource of mercy. This is one of the things, and once you discover this, it is like fun. Because mercy, actually Jesus says, mercy, the Bible is very clear on this, mercy is the thing that's actually topped up every morning. 
Every morning, the Lord renews his mercy. It's new every morning. This is, you cannot outspend mercy. You cannot outspend God. You have a credit card called mercy, and it's like heaven's paying the bill. And you can cash that thing in. You can buy that stuff. You can use that stuff like it's somebody else's because it is. It's heaven's. So you can tap into this experience of mercy that's beyond yourself. This is what Jesus does. This is whenever he sees. It's like literally, it's like him in a northern Canada shop with homeless people. He sees homeless people. He's like, want some food? You know, just like, come on home for dinner. Like he's just, he is tapped in to an inexhaustible resource called mercy. And this is what I really need you to know is that poor people do not need any more duty-bound religious people, you know, serving them to relieve their guilt. They don't need it. Nobody needs that. Keep that like in your little home, please. Like just shove that thing in, but shove it back. That duty-bound religious sense that you really ought to. Nobody needs more of that. There's nothing transformative about that. Nothing. There's nothing attractive about that. There's nothing powerful about that. That's just religion. What people do need is folks tapped into the mercy of God. What people do need are folks tapped into this resource that's not their own, that's free, that's extravagant, that they can't wait, that they're actually willing to go out of their way to get in the way because they just got stuff to spend. You know what I mean? They just got like, and so when Jesus goes out of his way to get in the way, these lepers are there, these 10 lepers. It's not like he's like, oh no, there's lepers here. I had no idea. That's where the lepers go. Like literally the rules of the land make the lepers go to the border places. So like, it's like Jesus is going out of his way to get in the way to find some lepers. You know what I'm saying? And then these lepers are like, Jesus, have mercy on me. And what is the thing Jesus wouldn't, like, wants to do more than anything else? Is have mercy on them. Of course, he's like, cha-ching, I've got just the thing. I have heaven's resource filled with mercy. Want some? <laughs> It's absolutely powerful. This one, love mercy. Love mercy. Don't do mercy. Don't act merciful. Don't be duty bound to be merciful. Love mercy. And if you don't have mercy, if you got the end of your mercy, tap into mercy. Tap into it. It's free. And it's topped up every single morning. 8.15 when you run out of your own, tap in. Tap into the inexhaustible resource. And, uh, and then what happens? Oh, that's verse one. I'm so sorry. I was going to be brief. Uh, <laughs> Wow, that's fun. Okay, so then as he entered a village there, 10 lepers stood at a distance crying out, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And he looks at them and he says, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, the scripture said they were cleansed of their leprosy. Now this is really weird. This is where Jesus gets even deeper. Are you ready to go? Even deeper. So Jesus, you know, we love the stories where Jesus touches the leper. You remember, because then we're like, look, he's not scared and like his healing outweighs like the risk and the cost. And we love that stuff because we also like we're American and we're like in love with the movie moment. And that's like a close up movie moment if ever there was one, right? Where it's like, I am willing, be cleaned. And he touches the, it's just like gold. But this is different. These 10 lepers, they shout out, there's 10 of them. And Jesus says to them, go show yourselves to the priest and you'll be healed. And there's just a couple weird things about this. <laughs> Number one, where's the priest? So the priest literally lives in the, in the sanctuary, like in the temple. And the temple is where? In the center of the city, right? Literally like the temple operated more like a town hall, you know, more than even just a church. It was all those things. It was the center of society. So it's the epicenter, not only of society, it's also the epicenter of cleanliness. 
Like to enter to where the priest was, to enter into the temple was like, there were so many cleansing rituals just to get there. You know, you had to pay your way to get clean enough to get in, you know. And so Jesus is telling these lepers that if they want to be healed, they're going to need to go where they're not allowed to go. I mean, this is weird, right? Like this is Jesus saying to these guys who know the law, they know the social customs, they know the norm. And Jesus is saying to them, if you want to be healed, you're going to need to go where you're not allowed. Now, there's a couple things about this that are important to know. One is Jesus is, and he does this all the time. When you start catching on to this, this will blow your mind too. He always gives people a choice. Now, the definition of poverty, the definition of poverty is disempowerment. It's a lack of choice. The definition of poverty is lack of choices. It's not just scarcity. That's just one version. That's just like a version of poverty. But poverty, by its definition, is a lack of choices. Disempowerment is that people can't help themselves or they would change it. They can't change anything or they would. You know, There's this disempowerment. And here the lepers are. They're like the picture of disempowered people. They've been put out of society. They're cast off. They can't do anything about their situation. And Jesus comes along and what he does is he gives them a choice. Do you want to be healed? Now, you'll notice this in every healing Jesus does. You remember when the blind guy's crying out? Like, this gets to epic proportion. The blind guy's crying out on the side of the road. And he's like, Jesus, master, have to... And everyone's like, shh, be quiet. And everyone, he shouts louder. And finally, Jesus is like, someone bring that guy to me. And they bring that guy to Jesus. And then, like, in this, like, kind of Monty Python moment, Jesus says, what would you like me to do? <laughs> and I'm like, the guy's blind. You know, he's been crying all day. You know, that you might have, I wonder what it's going to be, you know? I'd like a Mercedes, you know, like <laughs> Jesus says, what would you like me to do for you? And what he's doing, Jesus, in all of these moments, every time he encounters marginalized people, every time he encounters disempowered people, he empowers them. That's one of the great things because you know what it means to be human is it means to be free. You were created with the ability to choose. Even when God knew that that choice was gonna cost him a whole lot and it was gonna cause a whole heap of trouble, it was still the way he created you. It's part of your human DNA. So to be human means to have choices. That's why poverty is so pathetic and terrible and dehumanizing. And what the church needs to do, if we're going to be like Jesus, is we need to start offering some people some choices. We need to start offering some people some dignity. We need to start going into places and offering people, asking people what it is they would like to do if they could, what it is that they, would, they dream of, what it is that they would like to do if healing came, what it is they'd like to do with their resources, how it is that they could help, what, it is that, what do you want me to do for you? How can we help you? This isn't rocket science, but if you can find a border place near your community, just going to that border place without any answers whatsoever, but with questions, would be a fantastic way to begin. Would be a completely different posture, which would be a Jesus posture that would come in and say, what would you like us to do for you? How could we help you? What are some ways that we could support your community? What are some choices? What, how are some things that we could do that would bring some choices here? And, uh, and, and so he gives them this choice, go show yourselves to the priest, which is, of course, against the law. Just as an aside, every single thing Hitler did was legal. Every single thing. And almost every single thing Martin Luther King Jr. did was illegal. In his principle, as all social justice principles are, are to expose the injustice by exposing the injustice of the law. Right? in order to change the law to protect the vulnerable. And uh, this is one of those situations. Jesus inviting people to expose uh, an unjust law, a, a law that creates exclusion 
and creates disempowerment and creates more levels of poverty and more levels of exclusion in society. The other thing that Jesus recognizes is that in order to enter back into society as a full contributing citizen, uh, each of those lepers would need a certificate of cleansing from the priest. And once they got that certificate of cleansing, they could enter back uh, into the, into the regular uh, life, be a contributor rather than just a recipient of charity. Those are some, oh, wow. So, like Jesus, right? Deep end. Anyone feeling like you're, you're in the deep end? You were like, I was really just gonna try to like start a soup line, you know? <laughs> Do you have anything more practical? <laughs> get out of your way to get in the way, number one. Go see, go find it. If you don't know where the border places are, go find them. I guarantee you they exist. I guarantee you they exist. Find the group home for teenagers. Find the criminal, like whatever. Find the jail. Find the places. Find the inner city. Find the abused woman's shelter. Find those places. Begin to get informed. Begin to create some proximity. Don't be scared. Don't be absent. Don't be willfully blind. Don't stay in like protection. You know, one of the great beautiful things about that passage, it says on the way to Jerusalem, you know, Jerusalem figuratively is the place, is the cross, isn't it? It's the ultimate direction Jesus goes all the time. So all through the gospels, Jesus is always headed towards the cross. And let me tell you this, every single time, if you're headed, if you'll take up your cross and follow Jesus, if you'll actually believe what Jesus has invited you to do as a disciple, you will always, on your way to the cross, are the border places. I guarantee you. That's just, that's what the cross looks like. That's what it looks like to go the way of the cross, is it means going out of your way to get in the way every single time. Find the border place in your community. If you don't know where it is, begin with that. Two, when you get to the border places, start asking questions. Don't come with solutions, please. Ask some questions, create some relationship, find out some details. Begin to ask those people, what is it that's happening here? How is this happening to you? Tell me a little bit about your leprosy. Tell me how this is, how did this happen? How is this happening here, you know? And then begin to actually ask some questions that might include some choices. Begin to empower some people instead of disempowering them. Welcome to the Think Orange podcast. I'm Sarah Bragg hanging out at the Orange Conference 2018 with Noemi Chavez. So welcome to the table. Thank you. Glad to be here. I know. I'm excited to meet you. We were just talking before we started recording about California. Yes. That's where you live. Yep. And I'm I quite love jealous. <laughs> quite jealous. <laughs> it is pretty awesome. I mean, we can't complain. Even though we do, we have weather snobs in California. We complain if it's two degrees too warm or two degrees too cold. Exactly. Well, you've just got the perfect weather, so it's natural that you would be a little snobby about that. <laughs> yeah. Have you always lived in LA? Yes, I was born and raised in Los Angeles. I feel like that's a unique thing. Yeah. Many people aren't born and raised there. Yeah, actually, I mean, living in LA, it's, it's always interesting because um, people always ask me where I have my accent from. So like, you have an accent, what's your accent? And I'm like, I don't have an accent. They're like, yeah, you do. I didn't realize I had an accent until I started pastoring in Long Beach, which is about maybe about 10 miles south from where I grew up. The community I grew up in was primarily Latino, so my church family was Latino, my friends from school were Latino, so when I started pastoring a multi-ethnic church, um, the people in the congregation would say, so where'd you grow up? And I was like, 10 miles north from here. And they're like, where's your accent from? I'm like, I don't have an accent, you guys have an accent. <laughs> and they were like, no, you... And now I could actually hear my accent a little, so it's not... Um, 
I think the goal for me is to, I hope I never sounded like uh, Penelope Cruz or Sophia. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I like your accent. <laughs> Thank well, that's you. funny because you grew, you grew up and everything you probably did, everyone spoke similarly. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, it's just definitely the, the Latino heritage sound. Um, my first language was Spanish, even though I was born and raised here because my parents spoke to me in Spanish. So that's why I'm fluent in Spanish. But um, as I grew up, the language definitely was affected or the way I spoke by my home sound. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. So did you start the church? My husband and I planted 12 years ago. Okay. So when we planted initially, we planted out of a church in East LA. And the goal for us was to reach second, third generation Latinos, because that's what we knew. We thought, we're losing those generations. How can we reach those generations better? Um, we didn't know that God had other plans. And so as he shifted us into this city, there's a church there that the numbers of members had died down, and they asked, uh, after a long stream of conversations and interviews, would you guys be willing to come and pastor this church, the doors had shut down twice, and we were basically their third try. So we said, we'll do that if you let us bring our church plant with us. And they were like, yes, bring them with you. We need more people here. And so we've been pastoring there, and our church has grown, and we've planted some churches, really? and we've been there for a little over 10 years okay, in Long so, Beach. So was this not another Latino church? No, it wasn't. It was. Uh, it's a beautiful, colorful church. It represents the community of Long Beach, which is a very diverse community. You get everything from Middle Eastern, Asian, white, black, Samoan. I mean, we got people in our church from Brazil. Like, what, It's a beautiful, colorful, just picture of God's kingdom. What what does that look like to to lead that kind of church? You know, for me, because I did come from a very ethnocentric world, just like many people in America do, 80% of America is still segregated on Sunday morning, right? So yes. for me, I understand the tension people have in thinking like, what's the value in becoming multi-ethnic? Because entering that tension, um, you're going to have to face a lot of not necessarily race prejudices, but I'm talking about like spiritual prejudices, like people do church differently. And so you have to be willing to pastor people and to lead people to Christ and to elevate that conversation. And it changed me. Like it changed me. Like I have been stretched far beyond what I ever imagined. I don't ever want to go back to the world I came from. As a matter of fact, there are elements of that world that I feel were not biblical. And um, I've been able to grow in a way where I get to see the heart of God and the lens of God through different stories that I would have never come in contact had I not started pastoring in Long Beach. See, that's got to be so interesting to lead a church that, as you said, is that colorful. Yeah. And that come in with what you were saying, like spiritual biases. Like, this is how I do church. Yeah. How have you broken down those walls to make people kind of really come together when, oh, we sing this way or we sing that way? Yeah. We well, you know, we love food. So one of the best ways to con con connect with people is to sit and eat with yes. them. Yes, and isn't that funny that no one thinks about that? It's biblical for crying out loud. So we're like, we want to do the Bible right. So what do, where do so we have bring to meet on the up? Food, right? Where do we have to sit and, and hang out together and and cook together and spend time together and hear your stories and and learn about your family and learn about your you know. LA is already a very diverse, and it's a there's there's already a strong LA culture in LA. So we could meet you at that space, right? So that makes us already a very multi ethnic group, right? In LA, because 
music and art and foods and all these things already bring us together. But when you're willing to actually sit with people and hear their stories, then you don't pe- you don't put people on a category based on their spiritual roots, but more so you're able to be enriched by their history in God, right? Yeah. And what they can bring to the table to the future of the church. So we were willing to engage those conversations to sit at the table to dream together and get pushed back and pushed back as well. But at the end of the day, say we're the body of Christ and we're going to build God's kingdom in a way that brings credibility to the people who call themselves Christians in our city, right? It takes it outside of, oh, church is just this building that we come to on a Sunday. Yeah. And it takes us out from simply being a group of individuals who gather to worship, but more of a group of individuals that could influence um, the community that it's in because it doesn't just reach one demographic. Okay. So you are a pastor yourself. I think as a woman. Yes. And so I think that's something that's even just different for a lot of churches is that you're not just the pastor's wife. Yeah, no. And I and, and I have a lot of friends who are pastor's wives. Yeah. And um, even in that title, they're in their lane serving God in other capacities where it's not necessarily in the platform. Because I don't think anybody's assignment is necessarily to be a pastor's wife. Yes. I think we all have a calling and there's um, different ways that we can respond to God's call over our lives, and not everybody's life has to be public, right? But mine happens to be, but it was even from the beginning, you know? When my husband and I met, he was the worship pastor of our church, and I was the youth pastor. So we did that for many years before we church planted, and um, we were both strong leaders. Yeah. So, yeah. Perfect match right there. (laughs) Yeah, it's like two A-type personalities. There's no (laughs) conflict ever. None. You guys handle (laughs) conflict probably super well. It's just... (laughs) I love it. I love that. Well, today's conversation, I also want to talk about how the church can really be an advocate for a vulnerable generation, yeah. like that, the, a generation that is hurting and suffering and that is sometimes forgotten. Um, and so what demographic do you believe is really the most at risk? Yes. Well, you know, I, I we believe, but we've come just to this understanding that Girls in general are at risk, like in general, like even girls in church are at risk. You know, the culture continuously is telling us what we're supposed to look like, um, the pressures and of, of the expectation of what's going to bring satisfaction to your life and really make you feel fulfilled. So just girls in general are at risk, but then we definitely have a, a group that is even more so at risk, right, which is girls that are in foster care. And um, girls that are on probation in the city, girls that have run into some problems because of some choices they've made based on their upbringing and what they've been exposed to, all these things will affect the decisions and the choices uh, a young woman will make, right? So, you know, statistics show that about 70% of girls that are in foster care will end up needing help from the government. And um, statistics also show, and this is what we learned, was that um, over... 80% of girls that are trafficked in our cities were at one point in foster care. Wow. So when we learned that statistic, I mean, we already do outreach to girls that are on the streets. We've been doing so for over six years. Um, we have a diversion program, which allows girls to go through our program who have been arrested for prostitution, and we're able to remove that from their record. And so we're already working with girls that are on the street. Now we thought, what if we got to them before? The line that we would always say with our team, with our our core team, we would say, what if we got to them before the pimps did? Hmm. What if we actually uh, intersected that before somebody lures them into a lifestyle that then entraps them and and shames them and makes them feel like, I can't move past this? That it becomes their identity. Yes. this is. I love that you just even said that you work to get that off of their record. Yeah. Because then 
it truly is like removing it from their identity. Like yes. saying, this isn't who you are. Yeah, because we exactly you. like they can actually believe that before it gets removed from their record, but then when you go apply for a job, it continuously get put in your face right. or you have to continuously it's brought up in interviews yes. or it's yes. Yeah. I feel like that would be so hard to feel like you ever can actually overcome that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so tell me about the Brave campaign and what led you to create this. So, you know, when we learned that, you know, over 80% of girls that are being um, prostituted on our streets or girls that are in the sex industry, which is the, you know, the the porn industry or even the, um, the strip club industry, we thought, okay, what can we do to reach these girls? So we started a conversation with some of the Bureau Chiefs of Probation and the Department of Child and Family Services in L.A., started asking questions. And the dream became for our team was, what if we gather these girls and we provide them with like a catalytic moment where they hear the stories of women who have gone through similar things that they're going through, but we're able to provide them with answers and some hope that will help them to make decisions not based on the present circumstance, but know that there are choices for education, for dreaming, and for a hope into adulthood can set them up to make, you know, the kind of decisions that will bring for them the fulfillment that they're looking for even now, right? And so we thought, let's just ask. And we kept on meeting with these um, leaders in government position and in social work positions and they had a lot of questions. They were really nervous because they didn't know what we were going to do. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they, you know, they were really um, requiring for us to bring in all of the material that we wanted to use for the conference, give them examples of some of the speakers that we would have at the conference. And we submitted all those things. And after so many meetings, maybe about six or seven meetings with these high-ranking leaders, they said, okay, we're going to give this a shot. So once we decided to give it a shot, we um, put together our first gathering for these girls, and um, it was awesome. We had one fight almost break out for, because of gang rivalry. We were no like, way. this is a win. Right. These girls like- are not from church. This <laughs> right. is exactly. And so for us, the dream was, if we get these girls into a space of worship, um, we don't have to necessarily be preachy at them, right? We don't have to be like, here's Jesus in the Bible and open up your, you know, it. it we thought, what they're going to experience is the presence of a loving God through the people who are serving Him and loving on them, right? So bringing them into the space and providing these powerful stories. You know, a lot of people will say that there's not much power in just doing a conference. But I, I don't know about you, but in my life has shifted and changed through one talk. Sure. I, I've, I've, till this day, and I've been pastoring and doing ministry for for over 20 years. And I every time I go to a conference, I will speak, but then I'll sit and listen to other speakers because they will bring wisdom into my life that will shift the way I do ministry, my marriage, how I'm raising my kids. Why? Because I, I'm leaning into that, right? So we decided these girls can get something and there's fruit of it now, right? And clearly the idea for us is not just that we would provide a conference for the girls. It's the beginning conversation between the church in the community and girls that are at risk. So provide something that you want to bring these girls to. They have an amazing time. They feel loved. They have a blast. They get to laugh. They get to hear great stories. They get to hear great music. And then um, we get to say, hey, can we hang out again? You know, providing mentorship for them as well. Just so many levels, entry levels for girls to enter into community with people who will care for them uh, long term. What gave you such a passion for this? 
You know, it's Jesus. I don't have any daughters. I have sons. Oh, wow. I have two so boys. So these are like your girls then. <laughs> these are my right. girls. Like, so it's funny because people will ask, were you ever in foster care? And I'm like, no, I, I, I never was in foster care. I grew up in a home where my mom and dad have been married for over 50 years. But, you know, Jesus didn't have to go through the stuff that people went through in order for him to heal them or to bring them out of the margins and 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 give them value and dignity. He didn't have to, you know, be a foster kid to care about the foster kid, right? Which the Bible talks about the widow and the orphan, which in our context is like the single mom and the foster child, right? right. And he cared about them. So if he cared about them and he was able to do it without having lived through it, then I can do it too. And, um, and there's a need. And we're believing that there could be this powerful shift, right? And the next five to ten years if the church actually responds and says let's get our hands into the system and and really reach out to these girls and care enough about their future in the next few years we could see the shift in numbers and women that are being trafficked in our cities what do churches need to understand because i think that there a lot of churches are just in a nice way of saying ignorant yeah i mean they're just they're, they don't understand what this is and what their role could be and what's really happening what do they need to understand about this i think that what they need to understand is that there are vulnerable girls in their neighborhoods in, in the homes that surround their church building that there are girls who are hoping somebody would reach out and give them a real answer and um and they're one decision away from beginning to sell their bodies on the street and the church gets to lead them into a space or into a conversation or into an understanding that they're worth so much more, that we see them, that we value them, right? So one of the things that happened a couple of years ago after I I spoke at this gathering of pastors and leaders, this woman came up to me who was a leader in her church, and she said, I fell in love with Jesus as an adult, and I gave my life to him because he's good, and I felt his love towards me. And she said, but it took years for me to forgive the church. She said, I grew up in foster care, and I went from home to home, and I saw churches and buildings, and nobody ever reached out. Nobody ever said hello. Nobody ever said, come hang out with us. Come have some pizza, or can we um, grab some ice cream? Like, nobody cared as I would walk to school or walk through those neighborhoods. Nobody ever reached out. And when she said that to me, I said, God, not on my watch and not my church, right? And I could say that for my church because I'm the lead pastor in my church alongside my husband. But I said... Not, not in my community, right? Like, I, I want the girls, maybe they won't come to faith in the next year, the next two years. But when they do come to faith, because we're planting seeds of hope and eternity in them, when they do come to faith, they will say, God's been pursuing me since I was a little girl. And it, oh, it wrecks me. Because I think we can be, we can be an answer. Yeah. And maybe we won't see the fruit. The problem with the church is at times we want to see the fruit immediately. We want God to be like, yes, here it is, your labor, it's great. But we we can't. We can't manipulate and control the way God deals with individuals and if we could plant seeds of hope now. And it's hard. Yeah, it is. I remember thinking at one point, like, God, this is really overwhelming. Like, this is a lot. And I thought I was on my way to speak at APU. And when I was um, getting ready to speak in front of, like, thousands of students, this young girl came up to me. And on my way to APU, I was like, God, this is really hard. Like, I think you picked the wrong girl for the job. Like, you know, we always have great excuses how we don't have the capacity to do the great things God has called us to. And that's perfect because I, I feel till this day that God picked the most, you know, unable, most unprepared <laughs> 
person for this job. Like, I, I don't have the capacity to do it, but God does. Yeah. And so I'm sitting there getting ready to speak, and this young girl comes up to me, and she says, hey, I just want to tell you that whatever God has laid in your heart to speak into the students, you got to do it. We want to hear the word. And I was like, okay, thank you. I'll take it. And then she, I said, where are you from? And she said, I'm from a lot of places. And I'm like, what do you mean you're from a lot of places? She said, Azusa Pacific University, a student there. And then she said, I grew up in foster care. And I was in dozens of homes and in various states. And um, I remember when she said that, I felt like my knees were going to give out on me. Like, I'm driving to this place, and I'm complaining to God, and I'm saying, there she is. There she is. And she shared with me her story of coming to faith her junior year in high school. And now she's a sophomore at APU, and she's a junior high pastor at a local church close to the university. Like, God has shifted her story. Somebody cared enough to share the gospel with her. And um, I think that for us, it's that sometimes the assignment might seem too big, but our God is bigger. And so those steps for the one, right? Right. For the one. It, it, it turns our churches into churches that are brave. And that's what we tell people. Let your church be brave. How can we be brave? Because I think there's a lot of fear. Yeah. I don't know if that's the only thing that keeps us from stepping out or from looking up. But how can churches become brave? Yeah, so churches can become brave. Go to braveglobal.org. Check out some of the stories. You could also even see some of the things that officials in the city are saying about us, which is awesome because they're not believers. They're not Christians, but they're excited about brave. They keep asking us, when are more churches going to do something like this? The girls talk about this for weeks after. It shifts their attitude towards authority. It shifts their attitude towards their education. And it's not as hard as we think it might be. There are officials and social workers who have so many piles on their desks and they're hoping that somebody would help. Like, does some, anybody else in this community care about these kids? Right. And these people love their jobs. They're, they went to school to help people, right. right? And they're probably not getting paid a whole lot they're to not, do this. Absolutely. Right. So just this whole idea that the church is able to... So if you go to our website, you're able to get some information about how you could become a brave church and, and maybe begin by hosting a conference. And the people who are artistic in your church, the men and the women, the guys and gals who love to put on productions, who love to do fun stuff, like this this is huge because when we got to do this, the girls have these wow moments in God's house and the simplest things they think like, this is so cool. And I love that they're going to, you know, those moments create something in your memory line. And for them to have been created in the space where God was is powerful. So you get your team together and you're like, okay, how can we love on... You know, for us, the first one we did, we had a little under 200 girls. We're doing our That's fifth. That's a lot, though. Yeah, like, and and we didn't do any, like, advertisement. It was all the social um, workers and probation officers who did the work. Wow. So we're preparing for our fifth one this year, and we're expecting about 800 girls. Are you serious? Yeah. And That's then, incredible. And we don't do any of the promotion except for probation and social workers. About 90% of those girls are in the system. And so we just send it out. But here, what the beautiful thing is, is that it's grown and, and we're reaching more girls and we get to talk with them and we get to share with them and they get to experience something that's powerful and they hear stories of women who are overcomers, women who are strong, who are um, who are fierce towards their, they have this fierce attitude towards their future and their goals and their dreams, right? So, but it doesn't have to start that way. For us, it did. It blew my mind. But there could be, you know, a group of 20 girls around your church, and you put something together where they feel loved, they feel pampered, 
you actually have more one-on-one -on -one contact. You get volunteers to do special things for them. You give them lunch, you give them breakfast, and you have some powerful stories. And at Brave Global, you're able, once you become a partner, to download even some of those stories or videos that we've created from women who, from all backgrounds, have experienced either levels of abuse or foster care or addictions or brokenness, and something shifted their story, right? We're able to say how their stories shifted. We, we don't have to like bring out scripture and open up your Bibles, but we could talk about the decisions that then set us up for the future that we're dreaming. And so well, they get to see themselves. It's almost yeah. seeing a reflection. Oh, she is like me. She has lived a life like me, yes. or she's experienced something yeah. to where, you know, if you're just like, oh, well, here's the Bible. Like it's not yeah. as, uh, you know, you don't yeah. identify as The much. story tells right. so much more, right? And so it's a very lonely place for anybody who goes through any type of abuse or isolation. But even the just regular girls in your local church are, vul are vulnerable girls, yes. right? So we've had speakers come talk about image issues because that affects girls across, right? Across the board. And there are girls who have been abused and who have gone through different levels of uh, rejection. Um, maybe they're being raised by a single mom or a single dad. And so they're able to identify with some of these stories. And some of these girls in our local churches have gone through sexual abuse and haven't told anybody about it. So they're welcome to the conference or to that yes. space as well, right? It's yes. what it is. It's a catalytic event for girls. So that's brave, a catalytic event for girls. It's just the beginning of what the church can do. I am so excited about it. I loved getting to talk with you today. Thank you. Thanks for hanging out. Thank you so much okay, for having me. Can you repeat me. one more time where people can go to get involved? Yes, we'd love to have you go to braveglobal.org and um, read up on the information that we've put in our website that will um, not only inspire you, but encourage you as a church to become a partner. Well, today, I really hope you got some helpful information about how you can be part of the solution to this growing problem. We're so glad that you took the time to listen to today's episode, which was brought to you by the Orange Tour, which is a 16-city nationwide tour for your entire family ministry team, including all of your volunteers. It's a great place where your whole team can grow together by hearing about some of the topics that we talked about on today's show and help find solutions together. If you want to find out more about Orange Tour, just go to orangetour.org. That's orangetour.org. This is one of those episodes that I would really encourage you to share with a friend. If more people know about this problem, then we're closer to finding a solution than ever before. If you're not subscribed to this podcast, we would love if you could do that, whether you're listening on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And please make sure you check out the show notes. There's some great resources there that will help your church advocate for a vulnerable generation. You can find those show notes at thinkorangepodcast.com, thinkorangepodcast.com. Hey, thanks so much for listening. And remember, when you think next generation think orange thank you thank you thank you for listening to the think orange podcast join us next time for more ideas and conversations to help you influence the next generation for more episodes and show notes visit thinkorangepodcast.com